Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. When you make a multifamily offer on a large apartment complex in particular, there's a lot of terms that come with that offer, which can be just as important as the purchase price. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. What is going on, Best Ever community? This is Matt Faircloth here, and this is yet another DeRosa Group team contribution. Call it a takeover. Call it whatever you want. Call it a great episode coming your way from DeRosa Group for the Best Ever Show. And we are super grateful to be in front of you guys today talking all things multifamily. If you guys have listened to the show prior contributions that we've done, we've talked all things about getting equity lined up for your deals, choosing market for your deals, the proper team members you need to have on your team to do a deal. And now we're going to talk about the rubber really meeting the road on today's episode. We're going to talk about getting a deal to closing. You've teed all these things up. You've got your equity in place. Hopefully you've got the right market chosen. You've got your team members in. Now you've got a deal. You've made the offer. It's been accepted. Now you got to buy the real estate. So let's talk. Today, I'm bringing in my business partner, the brains of the operation at DeRosa Group. I'm just a pretty face. This guy's the one that actually makes things happen. <laughs> this is Justin Fraser, everybody. You guys might have seen him through our contributions to the Bigger Pockets Bootcamp. You might have seen him on some of his own podcast appearances and things like that. Justin, how are you today? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Hey, best ever community. Excited to be here. Let's get into it. This is where we get to the fun stuff. Raising capital, finding deals, that's all sort of the theory. <laughs> now we get a fish on. How do we get that fish on and what do we do and how do we this really- This is where Justin's team really steps in. A lot of the flash and fighting the markets, infiltrating those markets, finding those opportunities, that's all the beginning of where things happen. But the real execution side of the business, let's say where profitability really begins to occur- is where the asset management team really starts to grab their hands onto the wheel of your multifamily acquisition. So Justin, I know that in prior episodes, we've talked about this, that let's say Irve and his team have found an opportunity in a new market. The asset management team gets involved earlier in the game in helping evaluate that asset. 
helping build that business plan, helping confirm that the capital improvement is going to be there, helping confirm that rents are going to be where we want them to be, all those things, right? But then we go under contract and that's where the acquisitions team really brings you, your team in close. But is that even a contract? If you're buying a small residential, like a single family home or something like that, you might just say, oh, we're under agreement. In multifamily, because we like to keep things complex in the multifamily world, there are multiple steps. It's a journey. It could take upwards of a month to go under contract sometimes on a multifamily property. So the first thing you do is we submit in this thing called an LOI. What is that? Letter of intent. The letter of intent really starts on our team, Irve, our underwriting team, will put together a letter of intent. So the broker might say, Whisperer price is X, right? Whisper price is a funny way of saying the, um, the asking <laughs> price. So we're whispering it, but everybody knows what it is. So let's say we whispered it's a $10 million whisper price. So we might come in and say, yeah, we agree with that or we don't agree. So we're going to put an LOI out at the price that works for us, letter of intent. And that letter of intent is signaling to the buyer, this is our offer. This would be our offer, but... It's not just about the dollars. It's about when you make a multifamily offer on a large apartment complex in particular, there's a lot of terms that come with that offer, which can be just as important as the purchase price. So the letter of intent is not going to have the same detail as the contract, which we'll get to, but it does need to convey the main terms of how you are expecting this purchase process to go. Timeline is probably the biggest thing. So yes, okay, price, of course, top line is, okay, we're going to buy this for $10 million, fine. But here's the timeline. We might need two weeks to create the contract because residential, small multifamily, if you're using an agent, as you said, Matt, there's a standard contract. It's two, three pages long. You check the boxes, you write the number in and you sign at the bottom. And that's very, very standard. With large multifamily, our contracts could be 20, 30 pages. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo that we've got to figure out. So the letter of intent gets us into an agreement before we go spend the money to hire attorneys and get into the weeds of hammering out a formal contract. So that's why we want to get this letter of intent out quickly. It's generally something that we can put together. We've got a template we can spin it up really quickly. We don't need attorneys involved in that. So it's our way of saying, if you agree to this letter of intent and we agree, now we both agree to move forward and start spending money on attorneys to draw up that contract. Absolutely. So time frame is first. We need a timeline to get to that contract. Usually it's a week or 10 days or two weeks that we say, okay, in two weeks, we will have the contract set. Then we need timeline for access. When am I going to get onto the property? Timeline for due diligence. What is my official due diligence period? What happens after my due diligence period? Do I have money that becomes deposited and becomes non-refundable? All these terms get laid out as we write out this LOI. So we're going to propose, for example, I need two weeks to do this contract. After that, I have a 30-day due diligence period. After that, I have 30 or 45 more days to get to closing, knowing I need time for my lender to do their reports and everything else. So we're going to outline exactly how we're going to spend the next two and a half months as we move through this contract process. And there's also other things like how much deposit are you going to lay, those kinds of things. There are two things in real estate purchases. There are price and there are terms. Some people say price or terms, pick one. 
Meaning under which mechanism or how do you want me to give you your price or are you willing to adjust your price so that I can have my terms, those kinds of things. The LOI defines a lot of the terms of the sale. How long am I going to take? How much money am I going to deposit? Terms could say things like, how could I exit from the deal if I decide that I need to exit because I can't get financing or because if I find three underground oil tanks that you didn't tell me about, can I exit from the deal if I find those things? AKA environmental hazards, structural issues, those kinds of things. So those are all the terms of the sale and they get defined before you go under contract. A lot of times in smaller real estate transactions, those terms get defined in the agreement of sale and they get disclosed upfront. But the LOI really defines the price and mechanisms and details of your purchase. The buyer and seller will agree on those things generally in the LOI. Then you go to PSA, purchase the sale agreement, and that is where you're under contract with a lawyer. What a lot of folks can do is while your attorneys are drafting that PSA, you could be getting something called early access agreement to go and tour the property again, maybe go and do the beginnings of your due diligence, which we'll talk about in a second here. Just to start to get your head around what it is you're getting yourself into, it benefits both sides to do early access. And here's why. Some people say, well, it only benefits the buyer at no risk because when they're in under early access, there's typically no money at risk. There's no money posted for EMD for earnest money deposit, but it also benefits the seller because the seller can begin their journey of assembling things and expedite closing. And if there are things that need to get disclosed that you want the buyer to be aware of so they don't surprise you with due diligence requests later down the road or, oh, wait a minute, I wasn't aware that these units weren't unrenovated, whatever it may be, the buyer can have a little bit of time to get their head around the deal earlier, which I would say, if it's a friendly win-win transaction, the buyer and seller could just become more aware of what it is that each other are getting themselves into just that much earlier to have early access. We try and ask for that on every deal that we've bought and we're fine with it on deals that we've sold as well. So that's just a little nuanced caveat that tends to happen sometimes while your attorneys are taking the time that it takes attorneys to do, dotting all their I's, crossing all their T's, which could take upwards of two weeks. Might as well get to work while you're doing that, right, Justin? Yeah, absolutely. We've done our entire physical due diligence during an early access period. And that changes depending on the market. So a year, two years ago when we were buying, the market dictated that we had to come in with money non-refundable day one. But day one meant the day the contract was signed. So we essentially bought ourselves an extra two weeks to get in and get our due diligence done before we had that non-refundable earnest money. Nowadays, that's flipped back the other way and non-refundable happens after the due diligence period. So we're not trying to be as urgent, but we do still want to move quickly because we don't want to be wasting everybody's time and effort. If it's got to be win-win, guys. During the hotter times of the market, the 2000 late teens and early 2020s, it was very common for a seller to ask for a lot of the earnest money deposit to be non-refundable. Meaning if you exit the deal for any reason at all, they get to keep all or some of your earnest money deposit. That has become less frequent, less common. I can tell you it is not something that we would do in most transactions on the buying side anymore. We get asked for it all the time. Why not? Ask me for whatever you want. Doesn't mean I got to say yes. But the pendulum has swung a lot towards the buyers. And for many, many years, guys, the pendulum was 100% in the seller's corner. <laughs> like We sold an apartment building in the late teens. And we had 19 beds 
well, I can call the shots as a seller. I can say, oh no, you got to give me more money. You got to give me non-refundable money. You've got to close faster. You've got to take less due diligence time. Probably wasn't as fair to the buyer, but the pendulum is at least in the middle, if not a little bit slanted towards buyers now. Yeah, it's certainly balanced, which is a win-win, a give and take in that. So if you're listening and you're trying to buy, I don't think that you have to agree to money hard day one anymore. It's not an industry standard. It's something that brokers would sure love to see you submit because then there's better probability that you're going to consummate the sale and pay their commission, but it doesn't have to be end-all be-all for every deal that you see. I've got a few more things to go into the LOI before we move Do on that. here, Matt. One thing we're going to talk about in the LOI is financing. Is there a financing contingency? What's that mean? Financing contingency means, am I buying this subject to getting the terms I need to get uh, from a so lender? If my bank tells me, um, no, I don't have to close with all cash. Huh? <laughs> if you have a financing contingency, that's right. that's right. So a finance contingency gives you an out if you're a lender for some reason. And you can be more specific on your finance contingency. We received offers on a property that said, I have to hit this percentage interest rate and this LTV and proceeds from my lender. Otherwise, I can back out. So we saw some offers, even that specific. Other times, it's more general saying, if I can't get a loan, then I can back out. So there's different levels of intensity of a financial well, Let me just comment real quick on that. If you're trying to buy or sell, you got to give a little bit of flexibility. My crystal ball is broken. I have no idea what rates are going to be by the time the buyer locks their interest rates. And I think that you've got to give a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of give and take, a little bit of just understanding that there's got to be a range on things. So if you're expecting the interest rate to be exactly 5.5% from your lender, you want to exit if it goes to 56 that's probably not a win-win because you don't know. And your business model for the deal should be that inflexible that if the rate goes to 5.6 or 5.7, that your deal falls apart. If that's the case, you got the wrong deal. Your rate should be able to shift a little bit because guess what? It's gonna. It is going to go up. Maybe it could go down. Who knows? The loan proceeds from your lender should be within a range, those kinds of things. As a seller, we would accept a finance contingency with ranges that are a little bit above what the buyer's planning on going into the deal with. And as a buyer, you should also just understand you got to have a little bit of give and take and your business plan should be that strong and conservative that it can handle some fluctuations in the market. That's my two cents on finance contingencies because as Justin said, we've had people come at us with very, very tight finance contingencies that if anything sneezed the wrong way, they, they could get out of the deal. Well, that's not win-win, is it? So keep going, Justin. Any other components for the LOI? You yeah, so to last thing I'd just call other things that came up in conversation. So a lot of times when I'm touring a property, the broker will say things like, seller's going to renovate this many units before closing. I write that down because now that is going to go into my LOI that they're expecting that, or they're going to say, seller's working on this retaining wall. That's going to be done before closing. Any kind of CapEx or project that they say will be done before closing, that's going into my LOI. I want to be very, very specific about that. I also want to be specific if they say sellers, including all the washers and dryers or any special case sometimes, or they're still planning on upgrading, or we know that's a problem. We're going to provide a credit for X, Y, or Z. Okay. Well, that credit is getting written down and maybe I didn't know the number, but we need to make sure that that is something that gets negotiated. The only other thing back to lending is sometimes your lender will say, 
we've got to hit a certain minimum collection amount, mm. dollars in the door. And so sometimes that is a piece that has to get written into that LOI as well. Hey, this property's got to bring in $75,000 a month at a minimum. Otherwise, this that. deal kind of- We did that on a deal in, yep. in Winston-Salem. But here's the deal, guys. Let's just say that 75, the number that the lender said to us, right? we put that on the buying side of the contract, but the property was bringing in just for fun numbers, 95,000. So- right. There's got to yeah, be enough wiggle you can't, room. I can't stress this enough, guys. You got to allow for ebb and flow of things. So if your lender's saying this the particular deal needed to close with Freddie Mac debt, and Freddie Mac needed to see a certain level of received income in the property to justify their loan. I got it. Give me that number. And we gave it to the seller. And they were receiving a good bit above it. And guess what? They made sure that they continued to receive that all the way through closing because it's a win-win. Then we get to close. Our lender's going to fund the deal. You can't expect a seller to just take their hands off the steering wheel and just not collect rents for the next couple months until the deal goes to closing. That's not a win for you as the buyer either, is it? So it's okay to put stuff like that in there, but also allow that there is ebb and flow. People do move out. People do, unfortunately, fall upon financial hardships and they either choose to not pay their rent or are not able to pay their rent for a little bit. So you need to allow for those fluctuations, let's say, in income and that. So these are all little things that need to go under your contract. And I want to underscore one thing that Justin said. If the broker or the seller direct, if you're talking to the seller directly on a deal and they tell you something verbally, we're going to fix that retaining wall. I got it. Guess what? In many other parts of the world, someone's word is their bond. And it is enforceable if someone tells you they're going to do something. And you could think of many, many other parts of life that those things are enforceable. Not true in real estate. And I learned this a long time ago. Real estate, any commitment, anything is only enforceable if it's in writing. People can tell you that they're going to do the sun, moon, stars, and those kinds of things. But in a real estate transaction, all agreements must be in writing. You cannot say, well, the seller told me they were going to fix that retaining wall. I get it. If it's not in the contract, it didn't happen. So remember that, guys. If it's not in the agreement of sale, if it's not in the letter of intent and the purchase and sale agreement, forget it. It didn't happen. So as Justin said, have your notepad out when you're talking to the broker. Write those things down and write them down as contingencies that have to happen before closing. And then that way you've got something you can enforce. Absolutely. So I think that covers the letter of intent. That that gets us now. We're heading towards the contract. Well, yeah. And that letter of intent is, in essence, guys, to bottom line, that is the bare bones of the purchase and sale agreement. Letter of intent is typically three to four pages long. The students of our accelerator program get a copy of DeRosa's letter of intent as part of their subscription with us so that that's something that we give to our students as our LOI. And it's very ironclad. And then that four to five page agreement creates a... What do you think, Justin? 45-page agreement is a PSA like somewhere in yeah. there? Depends on the attorneys yeah. and how much writing they want to do, but yeah. yes. I, I think uh, they might get dollars per letter in the agreement of sale that they write. They must. I don't know. But anyway, that's what lawyers are for, guys. Then you turn it over to your attorney. They create a PSA. Then that gets signed, and then the deal is fully consummated. Then you post your earnest money deposit, and you're off to the races. And the next thing that gets begun to get you to closing is your due diligence period. While due diligence is running concurrently, what you're also going to want to do, and we like to divide and conquer at DeRosa. So Justin and his team will begin the due diligence period. You want your asset manager, whoever's going to run the asset once you own it, you want them to do your due diligence. 
And then on the other side of the equation, Hervé and his acquisitions team and myself, the finance team, will step in and begin working with lenders. And we'll also start raising capital. We'll build a marketing brochure. I typically go to the asset myself and shoot some videos, create some marketing content so we can attract equity. Hervé and his team is working with the lender on all the hoops the lender asked us to jump through in that. That's all different modules of this podcast where we talk about those kinds of things. Justin, let's say it is day one of being under contract on a deal. Let's pretend you didn't get early access. So you are assembling things and day one has started for DD. Talk me through that. What are you putting together? What are you doing? Who are you bringing with you? Talk me through the whole process for DD. Well, let's talk about first the purpose of due diligence, because the reason we do due diligence is we need to validate everything we're assuming, everything we've been told. Again, as Matt said, when people tell you things, now we need to validate it. The broker told us 40% of the units have been renovated. Well, I didn't go into all 40% of those units in my first property tour that was last. I thought the purpose of due diligence was to shoot bragging videos and do post on social media. Well, that's the purpose for you. Everyone's got their own goals. I do goals. more than that, just so you know. But <laughs> no, a lot know. of folks that you see- Everyone's got their own goals for, for due diligence. Selling, but... We sold a property recently and of 166 units, the buyer walked five of them. Uh, Listen, all 166 I, I don't judge. Units. I don't decide what they're going to do for us. I'm going to talk about our process. Our you goal judge, with due diligence is but, to- uh, yeah. Validate everything, <laughs> confirm yeah. everything. I want as much detail about this property as possible. So generally that's going to fall into two categories. We're going to look at physical condition and we're going to look at files and contracts in the office and out of the office. And so typically what we'll do is we will bring in our property management company that's going to be doing the managing and they will grab people from all the other properties, maintenance teams and whatever else. And we're going to assemble teams that day. Due diligence day, really one of my favorite days. So everyone gets together early in the morning. We've all got our Starbucks and we're all ready to go. So we break into teams. The goal is typically to get into every unit. Now with COVID and all that, we had some built-in excuses where we couldn't quite get into every unit, but that is the goal. Typically we'll get into 95%. I want to get in 95% of the units because I need to validate everything that's happening. So we'll break into teams. Each team has a role. Someone's going to be the note taker. Someone's going to be the photo taker. And the other person's going to be the one directing the team. Typically we'll have like teams of three that go in. So if we have 12 people, We'll have four teams of three typically. And the goal is then we're splitting up all the units so we can get into all units in one day. So we go into a unit, we're going to take notes and photos. We want to know flooring condition. We want to know cabinet condition. We want to know plumbing condition. We want to look at the hot water heater. We want to look at the bathtub. Does it need to be reglazed? Are there holes in the walls? Are there pests in the unit? If there's washer and dryer, what are the condition of the appliances? All these things. I want to literally get a snapshot of everything that's happening in that unit. And when they leave that unit, I should be able to have a photo record of all those things I just mentioned. Appliances, flooring, countertops, all that. And I should have a written record of it the same. And then that team leaves that unit and moves How on to How long the next. does that take for a well-trained team to walk through one apartment? Well-trained team can do it in five minutes, honestly. That's awesome. You know, five, six, seven minutes, depending on the amount of stuff in so the unit. Sure the you know, sometimes that's this, a problem. Because you, know, you hear that long list that Justin just rattled off. You're like, man, this is going to take a half an hour to walk through an apartment. 
No, no you should no. be able to zip through it quick. And the way that we've done it is with our due diligence checklist that our company uses. You don't want to just have people go in there, hey, Johnny, can you check out the tub? And, and Larry, go over here and look at the fridge or whatever. No, it's, it's boom. It's check, 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 check. People are, are spending a very quick time just checking boxes, writing down condition reports of things. And I've been a part of these teams and it's like a lightning bolt. And it's because you need to get through a lot of units quickly, but you have to collect a lot of data very efficiently. The key yeah. is preparation. Yes. We have our list of units. Every team knows what units they're going into. Every team is assigned a maintenance person from the ownership or the seller's management company that's got a bucket of keys that are in order. They might have a map. They know exactly the path they're going to walk on the property. And then they know when they go in, no one is debating what is my role. Everyone knows exactly their role. I got to take photos. I've got to take notes. I've got to look for this and ask questions. So every person has a role on the team. They get in and they get out. It's like a Navy SEAL team, just yeah. running in and running out. It's a really a cool experience it is. to it see. Is. It's, it's go, 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 go. But if you're able to run this efficiently, I've seen Justin and his team of around a dozen people, give or take, walk, let's just say, Justin, whatever properties in North Carolina, 200 units in maybe a day, day and a half at the top. 200 units yeah. in a day is a good expectation. Yeah. But um, the data that you, know, you get typically you do that, think about that, guys, when you back up and then Justin now then with some processing and some aggregation and some assemblage of the data, then he knows, okay, I've got of those 200, 70 of those bathtubs were marked as in good condition. 80 of them were marked to be in okay going to need to get changed out in a couple of years condition. And then 50 of them are need to get reglazed as soon as we take ownership or once those units vacate. He's able to really, really tighten up his CapEx plan, maybe come up with issues that we need to go back to the seller on. Justin, you tell me an example of during DD, you saw something that it was either not code or was outside the agreement, or we need to go back to the seller and ask them to make some repairs in specific units. Give me something. We can't overlook this. Needs to get handled. What do you got? Again, we're trying to confirm everything we were told. So the first big thing is going to be percentage of units renovated, right? Now, what is a renovated unit? Your definition might be different from my definition. It might be different from the seller's definition. They might have bought the property and a previous owner had renovated and then they've done a version. So renovation we want to get as clear black and white. This is renovated or not. And we have our definition. We're all very clear about that. And so the teams are also marking, is this renovated or not? So if the broker told us half the units on the property have already been renovated, that's my first check. I want to check that and see that, yes, we are seeing that half the units are renovated. Now, if you're off by a few small percentage points, we're probably not going to be too picky on that. But we want to know if only a third of them have been renovated and you told me half, that actually changes our CapEx numbers fairly significantly. The other thing is down units. What is a down unit? A down unit is a unit that cannot be rented. Could be because there was a fire or flood or severe pest or some other thing. Code shut that unit down for some reason. That happened. So if we were not told about down units, that's going to be a major issue that we're going to want to go back to the seller with because we were expecting that all those units were at least rentable unless we had been told mm -hmm. that previously. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. A 1031 exchange is one of the greatest tools to build your real estate portfolio. But before you sell your next investment property, if you want to save thousands in capital gains taxes, please give our friends at 1031 Pros a call. 
Whether you're an individual investor, title company, or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help you or your clients with their 1031 exchange needs. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros specializes in various types of exchanges like delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states, all while ensuring your transaction is fast, reliable, transparent, and secure. 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and right now, best ever listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash best ever. That's my1031pros.com slash best ever to get $250 off today. Have you heard that Mint, the popular personal finance app, is shutting down? If you use Mint, that's bad news. The good news is that there's an even better alternative, Monarch Money. Monarch gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with others. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. Most personal finance apps are clunky and cluttered with ads. Monarch is different. Its intuitive design makes setup, customization, and everyday use simple and easy. Monarch is also the most customizable budgeting app available. You can change your dashboard layout, create custom budgets and notifications, and even invite your partner, accountant, or financial advisor to have a joint view of your finances at no extra cost. Once you try Monarch for yourself, you'll understand why it was named 2024's best budgeting app by the Wall Street Journal. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash best ever for your extended 30-day free trial. Units that are just in general so, uninhabitable. I'll put it this way. Uninhabitable, even if there's somebody living there. Meaning like a non-functional hot water heater, something like that. It means the tenant's living in there without hot water. And that's sad to hear, but it's true and it has happened. Not everybody is great landlords. Not every seller is a phenomenal landlord. And you're going to do better than they are, of course. Because you guys are going to be great landlords and take care of people, but not everybody does. And you might discover these things. So all that said, that's your unit walk. And as Justin said, really the purpose of it is to make sure that what you're being sold is what you thought you were being sold. So you go and assemble your plan. And again, you've got some contingencies. You've got some ups, some downs. Certainly you've got a major CapEx budget of money you're going to spend in the property. So you might not go back to the seller with everything you find and ask them to make lots and lots of repairs. But if anything shows up egregious or ends up adding up to be way outside of your budget, then you might have that conversation. And yeah. I will say, if we are going to go back, that happens after our entire due diligence. So there's a bunch of other stuff happening. So we've got these sort of Navy SEAL teams running in and out of these units, as I described, but that's just one piece of what's happening on due diligence day. We've got two other main pieces. The second main piece is going to be the rest of the physical condition of the property. So typically we have general contractors that we work with and have done a lot of business with. So we'll prep with them ahead of time. They'll probably have already walked this property a few times and we'll have identified all the subs that we need to come out. So on due diligence day, I'm expecting that there's a crew up on the roofs evaluating all the roofs. I'm expecting that there are People who are putting cameras down all the sewer lines, and I need to see what's happening inside the lines. I'm expecting that a pest company is coming and looking at the pest contract and evaluating the property for pest control. I'm expecting that there are electricians on the property looking at the electrical setup. 
identifying where all the meters are. Making sure uh, that the electrical panels are properly wired and that they are not panels that have had issues in the past, guys. I can tell you that electrical panels are the sneak attack that can show up on due diligence. And this especially plays for older property. It's stuff like it was built in the 60s, 70s. There are electrical panels that are either banned or are determined to be no longer safe. Your insurance company may say, if you've got this kind of panel in your property, I can't insure you or they need to get removed or I'm going to have to charge you a exclusion or a upcharge on your insurance because you got that panel in your property. So make sure that you open up the breaker box as part of your walkthrough to write down who made that panel, how is it wired and everything like that. Cause that comes up aluminum wiring, copper wiring, those kinds of things all come into due diligence. And the last thing would be anything that we identified in our initial walk as concerning. So usually that would fall into either structural or maybe landscaping potential. We had one property we were looking at that, the edge of the building went down a huge steep hill and into the pond there. And so I was like extremely concerned that that building was going to fall into the pond. So I wanted someone out there that could tell me about that. Structural issues. I want an engineer on site looking at the retaining walls, looking at the cracks in the brick, looking at whatever we've determined in our initial walks that might be an issue that I just want checked out. So all these people are working together in a symphony. All these people are going to be putting together a report for me. Now, typically, I'm not going to be charged by the electrician, the roofers, maybe the electrician, but usually not. But I do know I'm going to have a charge for the cameras down the line. So that's always a thing that we know we're going to have to pay for. And the structural engineer depends. It depends on our relationship with them and how much work they're doing. But yes, if I'm looking for a formal report on something, I'm absolutely going to They're going to put the license on it. They're going to be stamping it. Absolutely. Right. Now, if they show up and they say, no, I don't see anything wrong here, then they probably wouldn't. But if they do see something wrong and they do need further investigation, then absolutely we're going to be paying for all that. And now that is out of pocket by the buyer, by the team doing the due diligence. This is stuff that's not earnest money, but these are dollars we have to pay to do this project. So that's something that you do need to be aware of that some third parties you will have to pay. Sometimes your property management company may charge you to assemble that team of a dozen people or so to go walk all those apartments for you. Sometimes if you've got a good relationship, as Dustin said, they'll do it for free. Sometimes they will charge you. We've been charged X amount of dollars per unit for walking apartment buildings for us. Every property management company is different. You should ask ahead of time, but before you make offers, once you get your PM company lined up, once you've chosen the market you're going to be investing in, find out what their due diligence overhead expenses are going to be. Your PM company can certainly locate a lot of these third-party professionals that Justin said as well. So everybody from the roofer to the electrician to the plumber to scope your lines for you, all those folks could be procured by your property management company. That's right. And sometimes your management company may not charge you if they end up getting the management work. It's all what you negotiate. But other times they've got to pay for the pulling their staff from all the other properties and you might have to pay five, six, seven, ten thousand dollars depending yeah. on the And day, it's better right? to discover these things now than once you're under ownership. That's why people are like, Wow, that sounds like a lot of work. Maybe I won't do all that. And I can tell you that we've sold a lot of real estate and not everybody that we've sold to has gone through everything that Justin and I have said. This is what we do when we buy properties and we rarely have post-ownership surprises. We kind of know what we're getting ourselves into by the time that we own the real estate, that this is what it's going to look like. Yes, that sewer line right there is about to collapse. So I'm going to have to dig it up and I'm going to have to replace it or I'm going to have to ask the seller to contribute to that. Likely not. It's not that I'm doing any of these things. 
to try and go back to the seller for a retrade. Let's be clear about that. You don't do this stuff so you can just throw the book at the seller. You do these things so that you make sure that your capital improvement budget covers everything that you're going to have to do. And that means you got to go into the deal with a conservative enough budget and be prepared to spend some money on these properties to bring them up to your standards and to keep maintaining them because you're going to always need work. There's always going to be something. But the purpose of you doing it is making sure that your budget is correct, not to have things to throw at the seller to try and get discounts out of them. Right. And and really, if you're going to go back to the seller, it has to be because the property is misrepresented in some way. That's generally the line that we draw. We're not going to go back because it's a 1970s building and the plumbing is old. So we need to go back and retrade. No, we knew what we were getting into when we're buying a 1970s building. That's par for the course. So we're not going to go back and ask for something on that. But we might go back and ask if you told me the roofs were brand new and we got up there and they were all installed improperly and they're not going to last. That might be something we have to go back on. So there's that. There's one more part of due diligence, Matt, and that is going to be not in done? the office. Right? I thought so we were done. We're I thought we could buy now. We can't no. go buy the real estate? All right, keep going. Actually, there's, there's probably more two more do, parts. Huh? Okay. Um, All right, keep going. So on this due diligence day, there's going to be a team of people that go into the office, and they're going to do a lease audit, a file audit. And they're going to go through and they're literally going to look at all the files. We're going to look at the leases. We're going to look at the applications. Justin, going through all that paperwork sounds like so much fun. I'll bet they drink coffee by the gallon when they're doing all that. I'll tell you what, this is something I don't mind supervising and watching the team do, but it is not for me. I'll tell you that. So we bring in folks who know what they're doing. They're usually property managers or regional managers, assistant managers, people that do applications, that process applications, that sign leases. And so they're going to come in. We're going to look at applications. We want to see, are the folks who are living here, are they qualified? Did their income match? Did we do credit checks? Did we do all the proper things that we were supposed to do? Do we know how many people are living in this unit? Are there pets on the lease? Because guess what? If there's no pets on the lease, but they're supposed to be, and then our team who's doing the unit checks finds a unit that's got pets in it, then we need to match that up and say, you're either charging properly or you're not charging properly. And that's something that we need to know about as Interesting. well. Interesting. So and, when the site yeah. team that's out there doing those unit walks, like I see a dog or there's seven cats. They will mark evidence of dog, evidence of cat, or we saw the animal. You don't need we to saw see, these many you animals. Need to, you don't need to see anything for a cat. All you got to do is walk in and take a good sniff and you know there's a cat in there or not. <laughs> but in our reporting and when we're synthesizing later on, we are going to match that up because I want to see that they charge the pet deposit and that they're charging pet rent and all that. And that the pet's information is on file because guess what? We have to keep records and files for all the pets on the property as well. So we want to see that that's all in there. We want to look at the rent that they're paying. We want to look at the security deposit because at the end of the day, I need to see they paid X amount of security deposit. And then I need to see that matching in the bank account. When I go back and I look at the bank accounts, I need to see that there's dollars for that because we need to make sure that the actual dollars can be transferred. So all these things we go through unit by unit by unit, and then we'll be able to note missing applications here, underqualified residents here, missing pet fees, missing pet documentation, all the different things. Sometimes there's just no leases and we're seeing that someone is in a unit, but there's no lease. Okay. That's something we're going to have to clean up or ask the seller to clean up before we Did get Did you in cover there. what an underqualified so the lease resident audit, is? What resident is? Did you cover that? It could be someone that's not meeting the income requirements um, for yeah. living there. The reason you want to know that is that there could be a collections matter coming up. And I want to highlight something because I don't want to treat tenants like a statistic. 
At the end of the day, you as an owner, the right thing to do is to make sure that your tenants can comfortably afford to live where they're living. And I can't say that every owner is going to do that. Owners may just compromise their rental approval standards or compromise what their income requirements are to put a warm body in the unit, A, so they could just sell, or B, so they could cross their fingers and hope that that tenant pays their rent for a little while and just lives a little bit lean. But chances are that tenant may fall in some sort of a hardship, especially if their income just doesn't support the rent for where they're living, then at some point they're going to fall short and you as the owner are going to have to deal with them falling short. So when their lease renews, you may need to make a tough decision about helping that tenant move to a place that they can't afford and getting out of the unit that you've got. So you've got a vacancy that's coming up or you've got a delinquency that's happening when the tenant falls short one month and isn't able to pay. It's not a statistic thing. It's just making sure the tenant is able to comfortably maintain their obligations to you and their rent payments. So I want to be clear on that, Matt. If they're in a lease, even if we see that they're underqualified, let's say our standard is three times the rent is what they need to make an income. That's our PM standard. Let's say we see that over the last three months, we've seen a great occupancy spike, but all the applications are at 2x instead of 3x. The current owner lowered their standards so that they could fill the property. Now, I can't remove those people out of the property if we have a lease. I can remove them if they're not paying through all the normal standards, if they're violating their lease. But if they are paying, there's nothing I can do. We're locked into the lease. But what it does tell me is that this owner stuffed this property full of people to make occupancy look good or bump up revenue a little bit in the short term. But if the standards have deviated that much, I know I'm buying a problem. And that actually might impact my projections because now I might have to factor in a heavier amount of evictions over the first six months of ownership Because typically, if you see a huge swing like that, then statistically, as you said, we're going to have more problems. We're going to have more non-payers. So I've got to factor that in now to my underwriting model, and that might actually change the whole outcome on our projections. So it's something that we have to factor into our overall decision. Thanks for covering that. One other thing, Justin, just to highlight here, when you're doing the paperwork audit, the seller comes to us and says, here is what my income and expenses are. You've ratified income on that lease audit. That's really what you're doing. You're verifying that the income that they're telling you is what it is, and it'll continue to be what it is for the foreseeable future as you execute your business plan. Then there's the expense side. They're saying, my water bills were $1,000 a month. My real estate taxes are X. My insurance cost is Y. There's very simple ways, but you need to verify the expenses on the property as well. Correct, Justin? What does that look like? A lot of the expense verification is probably not going to happen on that due diligence day when everyone is there. But what we do want to get is the information we need. So if we need to photocopy utility bills, if we need to copy service contracts, all those things, we want to get all that data while we're on the property. Then we're going to go back over the next because due diligence is not a one day thing. That's just the on site day, maybe one to two days, depending on the unit size. Now we've got maybe another 30 days where we've got to validate, synthesize, put all that data together. So there's where we're going to really get in and evaluate all the expenses. And I'm going to look at the photocopier service contract and compare that to the T12. I'm going to look at the pest control contract and compare that to the T12. And I'm going to look at utility, all the things that we have contracts for or expenses for. We're going to go back and actually match that up to the financials we've received and double check that everything balances out. 
So Matt, we had a pretty big issue on this. So I'll tell this story quickly. If you remember, we were under contract on a property and the T12 had one number for water expenses. And when we took the 12 months of utility bills and you add up January and you plug that in your calendar and you plug in February plus March plus April, the dollar amount when you added up the 12 months of bills was significantly higher than the dollar amount that was on the financials that we received from the seller. And so there was a huge discrepancy just in adding up the actual bills versus what the seller. We went back to the seller. The seller said, oh, we smoothed the expenses. We normalized the water bills. And we said, what do you mean you normalized it? What do you mean you smoothed it? Essentially what they said is, we made up a number that looks a little bit better because we had a few water leaks. So we thought those numbers were high. Well, thankfully our team that was doing the analysis caught it. And we went back to the seller and said, you misrepresented the expenses on this property. And it was a large enough amount, Matt, that we got a million dollar discount on that property because of the egregious difference. All it took was adding up the 12 bills in our hands. And if we had not done that, we would have been in huge trouble and really misrepresented what we thought. But also going back and having the courage to negotiate that too, to say, well, it's a little bit higher, but I guess we'll just have to tighten up some pipes and things like that to stop those water leaks. There are times, this is where we should go about summing it all up here, guys. At the end of the day, there are times when you discover some things that it's a matter of just adjusting your business plan. For example, you find out that a few more of those bathtubs need to be reglazed, a few more kitchens need to get renovated than you thought, a few more appliances need to get fixed or replaced or whatever. Well, that's a budgetary item. But as Justin said, if the water bill is coming in 20, 30% higher, that does really affect the bottom line. It does affect that NOI for the property, which does directly reflect what the property's worth. That's how Justin was able to negotiate a million dollar discount on that property because it drastically affected the NOI, the bottom line, which is how multifamily gets valuated. And if you apply the same cap rate to the drop in NOI, the price changes drastically. That is a misrepresentation. So generally for us, if we see a misrepresentation, it's usually pretty clear cut. Now the seller could have said no, and we actually probably would have backed out because it did change our numbers that significantly. So that's what we said, but we had to go back and reopen that negotiation. On the other side of it, Matt, we've shot our shot. And when we're buying a property, I said, these roofs aren't as great as we thought. Can we get a credit? And so I was like, you saw the roofs when you put that offer in, you could have had a guy up there. We're not changing our number. Choose to back out if you want. And we had to say, okay, they didn't misrepresent anything. We probably just misbudgeted and we moved some dollars around and ended up being fine. But that seller really was in the right to say, no, that's on you I'm asking, can you do something for me here? But at the end of the day, this is all negotiations back and forth. It's not like that seller said to us, those roofs are brand new. I just replaced them. And then Justin goes up and sees that the shingles are bad and it looks like there's active roof leaks and those kinds of things. That wasn't a misrepresentation. That was just a, we didn't have it in our budget. So if you didn't have something in your budget, you can't always make it the seller's fault. Justin, I want to underscore one other thing here. Our company, DeRosa, purchases larger multifamily assets, 80, 90, 100 units and up into the mid to high hundreds of units of real estate at a time is what our typical acquisition criteria looks like. These rules that Justin and I are highlighting for due diligence, the things you need to do apply. I don't care if you're listening and you're planning on buying a 10 unit. If you're over here and like a lot of those things that Justin and Matt are talking about would not apply to me buying a 10, 15, 20 unit apartment building. They sure do. 
And I think that they actually apply more because every little thing moves the needle a lot more on your 10 unit. If one of your tenants was put into that property unqualified to pay the rent sustainably long-term in there, that matters more than the one tenant does in a 200-unit apartment building. That's right. If I've got a couple hundred unit apartment building, I might have half a million dollars of contingency built in my CapEx plan already. If I'm buying a 10 unit, I might have $10,000 of contingency built in. I don't know. So those one issue can go a real long way and really just devastate mm -hmm. your budget. Absolutely. So that's what I wanted to take at home, guys. These rules apply for large and small deals. Guys, we didn't talk about, nor was this part of today's conversation, on the other things that are happening. So while Justin's running all this, as I said, I'm out trying to raise capital, run lots of webinars, calling everybody I've ever met in my entire life and asking them if they'd love to join us on this awesome real estate project. Irve sprinting to the finish line with his team on legal and on financing and everything like that. And we all meet at the closing table a month or two down the road. So this is one third of what it takes to buy real estate, but this is really the validation process. Justin, what do you got? There's one more thing, which we haven't gotten into, but the lender is doing their own due diligence. So the lender is doing appraisals. They're doing environmental. They're ordering their own reports. They might send contractors out if they've got they questions. They send an engineer out. So you they, got they do a physical inspection as well. as well. They come and inspect yeah. to make sure that your capital improvement budget, that you're saying, hey, lender, I'm going to spend $7,000 a unit to renovate this apartment building. And they look at it and their engineer walks out and says, yeah, that's about right. That's about what I think it'll take to bring this property up to today's standards. Or they look at it and say, no, I think it's going to cost 15000 a unit. So they might want to work with you on either more loan proceeds coming back your way or reducing what their loan exposure risk factors could look like. So the lender is a major part of the Often. process too. Often we are given a scope by the lender, by the way, and the insurance company, because they're doing their own diligence as well. So when we close, I typically will have a, a few line items in my budget for lender required items and insurance required items, because they will have their own things that they want, sidewalks repaired, handrails, whatever else. So we've got to factor all that in as well. So all those things are happening in addition to everything Matt just said about what the rest of our team yeah. is doing. And I can tell you that the lender and the insurance company are obviously, they're not going to say, well, these kitchens could use the sprucing. Justin's looking at that from a revenue and business plan standpoint. The lender is going to walk out there as they will the insurance company and say, this sidewalk is uneven and someone could sue you because they could trip and fall on that sidewalk. And we don't want you to get sued because that means we get sued too. So we want you to fix the sidewalk. That's part of your plan and other things that the lender may see that are maybe not saying you weren't thinking of these things, but they're typically outside of your typical property improvement value add plan. It's more concerning safety, longevity, sustainability for the asset long-term for what they're investing. They're never in. things that are going to put more money in your pocket. They're never things that are going to no. add more revenue, new amenities mm. or anything like that. No. It's you should put like a playground over there. You just, <laughs> yeah, no. It's going to be all stuff that you just have to do to maintain the safety and integrity of the property. Guys, this is all part of the journey for buying real estate. You cannot just go and put a property under contract and fold your arms, raise the money and wait till closing. You got to get in there with your hands and validate that the property is what it is that the seller told you you're buying and validate that your business plan is successful. That is where the rubber meets the road, guys. This is where profitability happens or doesn't happen in the purchase of real estate. Do not be some of the folks that we've seen that are out there buying real estate from us sometimes and not really rolling up their sleeves and doing all the due diligence that we would have done in a deal.
The students of our multifamily accelerator program, Justin, get access to that checklist that you talked about. So guys, if you want to hear more about our accelerator, want to hear more about what it takes to do a proper due diligence on our deals, go to derosagroup.com forward slash best ever to hear more about our programs and how DeRosa's accelerator program can help you build your active multifamily business and 10x it as we have over years. We've 10x their company and we've taken the tools that we've put in that journey into the accelerator program. So we're really proud of it. It's something that we've got some phenomenal students. Not everybody qualifies. You might not qualify for the program, but if you think you might qualify, and if you really, really want to build your multifamily business moving forward, go to derosagroup.com forward slash best ever, because we would love to have you guys join that program if you qualify for it. Absolutely. So, Justin, this has been awesome. Always enjoy chatting with you about real estate, talking about things that you're doing that I don't have to do. Yeah. <laughs> Your favorite I do. part. Exactly. I love discussing other people's actions. I'll joke well, in a we second. have fun. But... And one final point for due diligence, it's okay to walk away after Ooh. due diligence. And that's one thing I want to underscore here. But I spent money. There is always but wait, I paid a money. decision I point. paid money to have the guys scope the lines. I know you spent money, Matt. I know you're not happy. Yeah. You spent money <laughs> to scope those lines. You spent money with the management company. You might be out $25,000, $30,000 for due diligence. For a 10, 15 unit guy, exactly. you out a couple of grand. And I'll, I promise you, sure, absolutely. out a couple of grand but either, is what, better whatever the dollar buying a bad is, property. Whatever the size yeah whatever the dollar amount is, it's okay to say, we're not getting what we want out of this. This property is not the condition we thought it was in. The seller's not coming down or renegotiating with us. We have to walk. And that is absolutely important because it's way better to lose the money in the short term that you spend on your due diligence than to get locked into a project that is going to be an anchor around your neck for the next five, seven, 10 years, whatever your hold period is. Don't just assume these problems are gonna go away. Don't just assume you'll find the money. You have to have your plan ahead of time. And if your plan is not matching up with the needs of the property, you've got to walk away. And that is A-OK. And we can celebrate that and high five you and be so excited that you saw something that didn't work and you respected yourself and your investors enough to say, this is not for me. This is not the right opportunity. And I've got it to walk away. It is OK away. that's okay to too. walk away. That's Take right. that home, guys. That's Take that home. With. Great episode today, Justin. Always a pleasure talking some real estate shop with you. All joking okay. aside, what we talk about a lot at DeRosa and in our programs is the efforts that are done by all different legs of the multifamily business. This is not a business that can be done by one person. You need multiple teams, multiple people, multiple initiatives for a successful real estate company. And that's what we've helped our students build. So the asset management, let's call it the hammer side of the business is what really runs this side of the process. And we've talked about today. So thank you, Justin. Thank you, my hammer. Uh, Thanks for having me joining us today, guys. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.